turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scripture to Colossians chapter number two. Colossians chapter number two this morning. We are so blessed today as Christians to have so many Christian resources available to us in print or online, television, radio, podcasts. We have Christian conferences and we have Christian movies and there are Christian companies and Christian t-shirts and Christian coffee. No, there's no Christian coffee. That's an oxymoron, you see. Christian, all right. (laughs) At the same time, we are burdened today as Christians with so many resources because it can be confusing. If you want a Christian resource on marriage or on parenting or business or romance or dieting, it's all too much. How can I possibly know if what is labeled as Christian is any good simply because it's labeled as Christian? One resource might promote the sensational sign gifts of speaking in tongues. Well, another product might argue that the prophetic sign gifts of the Holy Spirit have ceased. One Christian teacher might give instruction regarding social drinking or baby baptism or divorce and remarriage or financial planning, while another Christian teacher would argue the exact opposites. And so the the information age has overwhelmed us, even in the Christian community. Who's to say what is good and what is right? So recognizing this problem, one Christian publisher has created a slogan that is aimed at their competition. And they advertise their brand, you may recognize the brand, they advertise their brand as the name you can trust. Maybe. Maybe not. Who's to, who's to say? And so there's confusion even among us as Christians. And that confusion is not unique to us in the 21st century. Even back in the first century, the believers endured similar confusion. And that confusion is exactly what the Apostle Paul is addressing here in his letter to the Colossian church. Specifically, scholars call it the Colossian heresy. I like to describe it as the Colossian heresies, plural, because there were a number of different ideas and philosophies and teachings that were all very confusing to biblical Christianity in the first century. I've written this at the top of your notes. I've written, Paul mounted a direct attack on the Colossian heresies. You remember from our study last week, Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15, he compared the insufficiency of philosophy to the sufficiency of Christ. And now, in the following verses, verses 16 through 23, he confronted the confusion regarding legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. And so from Colossians 2, verses 16 to 23, I've prepared a message titled, Confusion in Christianity. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we look at the scripture. God in heaven, I ask that you would give us humility as we seek to discern right from wrong and truth from error. I thank you for the scripture which is profitable for doctrine or teaching for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. But Lord, I pray 
that you would help us to, to break through the confusion that may exist in Christianity today as we study this text. For I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Colossians chapter two, look with me, beginning in verse number 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. I would offer you first, number one, legalism, legalism. And the Apostle Paul is saying, don't be criticized or judged or condemned by men. Legalism is that nasty word that we often use for those who are conservative in our culture or strict in their discipline or have a, a high personal standard of conduct. But technically, biblically, legalism means salvation by works. Legalism is the belief that salvation is gained by law-keeping. Under the dispensation of the law in the Old Testament, God's covenant people, the Jews, were governed by hundreds of rules, 613 to be exact, and those civil and ceremonial laws, which they were compelled to obey, did not earn the Jews' salvation, but were a shadow of things to come, namely Christ, verse number 17, and I'll speak to that in just a moment. But salvation has always been by faith alone. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. But what happened is over time, there, be, there, there came to be a misunderstanding that developed, and the misunderstanding was the Mosaic law and Jewish tradition were the means for salvation, for example, by the time we come to the, the pages of the New Testament, it was believed by many that circumcision was necessary for salvation. However, what we learned last week in verses 11 through 14, true circumcision is the circumcision of Christ who made us alive together with him, having abolished the requirements of the law. And so by the time we get to the first century, this legalism or this law keeping for salvation was asserted by the Pharisees very strongly. However, the Pharisees weren't even legalistic enough to earn their salvation. So Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse number 20, unless you're right Righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, which is a hypothetical impossibility, you see. You will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Rather, the Bible says in Romans 10, verse number four, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so legalism, law-keeping, is not the means of salvation, but rather Christ is alone. This was made clear to the apostle Peter, in Acts chapter 10, when Peter received a vision of a sheet being lowered from heaven, perhaps you recall this, Acts chapter 10, a sheet being lowered from heaven full of animals. And Peter was commanded to kill those animals and eat that meat. But he objected. For, for many of those animals were unclean according to the law. And it was then and there that God explained to Peter a new Christian liberty from the Old Testament law eliminating the Jewish dietary laws. Peter was then sent to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. Think unclean. And there Peter explained the gospel to that Gentile family. Cornelius and his household were saved. And at that point there was a very definite change in God's program, the end of the law. 
This new Christian liberty became the issue of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 where the apostles and the church leaders affirmed the, the, the truth that, that no longer did, did, a, did anyone have to adhere to the Old Testament law or the dietary codes or circumcision. The old covenant was done away. Jesus brought in a new covenant and that Christian liberty is because of his sacrifice for all. And so it's then that Paul wrote to the Galatians saying it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery, that law keeping or that legalism. However, for much of the first century, there was confusion regarding this in in Christianity and there were false teachers and there were false preachers and there were believers who were judging verse 16 or they were criticizing is, is the word that I've used there in your notes they were condemning others who named the name of Christ but did not follow the Old Testament Mosaic law and here in these verses Paul gives us three areas in which Christians were criticized by the legalists first letter A criticized for what one eats For what one eats, you see it there at the beginning of verse 16. So let no one judge you or condemn you or criticize you in food or drink. And as I already mentioned, Peter objected to the eating of the unclean meat in Acts 10 because for the Jews, quadrupeds with parted hooves that chewed the cud were edible. All right, think a good steak. However, on the other hand, the camel, the rock badger, the hare, and the swine or pig were specifically rejected by name. For fish, those who had fins and scales were edible, but sorry, no shrimp. For birds, there was a list of 20 birds that were not to be eaten. This is all in Leviticus 11. For insects, the ones specifically mentioned as being edible were... were, um, were those that had legs and leaped could be eaten. <laughs> but the, the, the locusts and the, the grasshopper were, were some of those, while other flying or swarming and crawling things were rejected. So in this case, there was to be no maggot snacking, all right? Uh, that was not allowed. No slug snacks, and we're, we're grateful for that. But there were people who were criticizing others for what they were or weren't eating. Don't be criticized for what you eat. Secondly, don't be criticized for how you celebrate. How you celebrate, that's there in verse 16 as well. Or regarding a festival or a new moon or a a Sabbath, a festival was a feast day for the Jews. Many celebrations the Jews had. Of course, we're familiar with Passover and Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Lights. And the, the new moon described the first day of their lunar month on, the, on their lunar calendars that would mark the days for these celebrations and for these sacrifices. And evidently, the Colossian believers were being judged by others because they weren't keeping all of these holidays. They weren't observing them. But folks, it didn't matter anymore. There was a Christian liberty from the Old Testament law, but, but there was some confusion at the time, and so Paul had to make it clear. Further, um, how about this? You see at the end of verse 16, criticized for when one worships, and, and it, it cites here the Sabbath. Now, under the Old Covenant, the Jews were to observe a Sabbath day, the seventh day, Saturday, 
And that Sabbath was reserved for rest and worship. However, under the new covenant, there is convincing New Testament Bible evidence that we are no longer bound to the Sabbath day. And so I I just want to take a moment. It's it's a brief detour, but I want to offer you 10 evidences and arguments. This isn't in your notes. It's not on the screen. But I want to make a case briefly for why we are not Sabbatarians, why we don't worship on Saturday and feel compelled by law to do that. I'll give these to you quickly. Number one, the Sabbath was a sign to Israel of the Old Covenant. And we as the church, both Jew and Gentile, are no longer required to keep the Old Covenant's. Number two, nowhere does the New Testament command Christians to observe the Sabbath. Number three, the early church met together and worshiped on Sunday, the first day of the week, not on the Sabbath. Number four, nowhere in the scripture does God expect Gentiles to observe the Sabbath, nor does he condemn them for not observing the Sabbath. Number five, there's no evidence of anyone keeping the Sabbath before the time of Moses or before the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. It was something that was introduced with with the law. The Jerusalem Council, number six, in Acts 15, did not impose Sabbath keeping on Gentile believers. Number seven, Paul warns us of many different sins, but he never warns us against breaking the Sabbath. Number eight, Paul rebuked the Galatians for thinking that God expected them to observe the special days. That's Galatians 4, verses 10 and 11. Number nine, in Romans 14, verse five, Paul taught that keeping the Sabbath was a matter of Christian liberty. And then number 10, the early church fathers from Ignatius to Augustine taught that the Old Testament Sabbath had been abolished and that the first day of the week, Sunday, was the day Christians should meet for worship. You say, Pastor Matt, you seem really fired up about this. Is is this an issue? It's an issue because I recently fielded a phone call here in the office of Fourth Baptist Church with a gentleman charging me and us of not keeping the Sabbath. That one may or may not have been a believer, I don't know the man, but I suffered criticism, we suffered criticism for abandoning the Old Testament law keeping of of the Sabbath day. And so the Colossian heresy, or heresies, I'm calling them plural heresies, included a legalism that demanded strict obedience to the civil and ceremonial laws of Judaism. And Paul says, don't let yourself be criticized or condemned or judged by these others. Don't be confused just because a few loud mouths are saying that we should keep law but rather know that the Old Testament law was a shadow of things to come, verse 17. And folks, shadows have no reality in themselves. They are, they are just a reflection. They point to a reality. And the reality is the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 17, which are a shadow. These things in verse 16 are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. And so the language at the beginning of 16 makes it clear that this warning grows out of what Paul has told us in the previous verses. It's reaffirmed in verse number 17. All right, what's the application for us today, the 21st century New Testament Christian? We don't deal with the confusion of Judaistic legalism. But there is always ongoing confusion regarding many areas of personal conduct, 
recreation, entertainment. We debate over issues of worldliness and holiness. And we compound the confusion with our criticism and condemnations of one another. We need to be careful. There are certainly Bible principles that should govern our lives. We should certainly be pursuing holiness, but we cannot impose law-keeping on one another in a critical, judgmental way. Number one, legalism. Don't be criticized by men, but it wasn't just the legalism that caused confusion. Look at verses 18 and 19. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows together, grows, I'm sorry, with the increase that is from from God. This would be, number two, mysticism. And here with mysticism, I'm saying don't be cheated by experience. Now, you look at verses 18 and 19 as I just read them, Paul is describing the heresies of a mystical, false humility, angel worship, and dreams and visions. All right, so let's, let's pick these apart. First, false humility is ugly pride. It's the very thing that filled the heart of Satan to rebel against the Lord. Secondly there, the, the, the worship of angels. That's a problem. Why is angel worship a problem? Because Jesus strictly declared, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We don't worship angels. Then third, you see there are these false teachers that were experiencing visions and dreams and and like heretics and cultists throughout the century, they claim support for their teaching because the visions they had supposedly seen. And Paul warned them not to be cheated by experience. Okay, there's a lot of confusion then and now because of experience. How do you tell someone that they didn't dream what they dreamed? Or they didn't hear what they heard. They didn't feel what they felt or they didn't experience what they experienced. It's impossible because we weren't there to share that same experience. Categorically, these experiences can be labeled as mysticism. And mysticism can be described as the pursuit of a a deeper or a higher religious experience. And there, there are some characteristics of mysticism. I'll give these to you six characteristics of mysticism quickly. Um, a mystical experience is something private. It's something religious, private and religious by nature. Mystical experiences are intense, single events. Mystics admit that words are inadequate to describe their experience. Mystics claim that their experience is self-authenticating because they heard or saw or felt something. It, It must be true because I had that sensation. Mystical experiences are not testable or repeatable. Mystical experiences can be misinterpreted. And with this understanding, Paul is warning the Colossians about those who are proud of their experience. In fact, it says there, you see it, they're vainly puffed up in their minds. They're boasting about what they saw or what they heard or what they felt. My experience has been this. 
and they are vainly puffed up. So what's the application for us here in the 21st century? There will be confusion among Christians in your life, in the life of our church, when we operate on experience rather than on precept and principle as preserved for us in God's word. Be very careful of those who claim or boast in their claim of an experience. Martin Luther said, feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God. Not else is worth believing. Don't, don't be cheated by an experience. Meaning this, you felt a sensation. You had an experience and it robs you of what God's word teaches or your fellow Christian had a sensation. They had an experience that you didn't have. Well, how unfair is that, right? And so we need to be, be careful of that confusion. Look at verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, or better, since you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, this is your position in Christ. Why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations like, verse 21, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and the doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion. It looks good. It may make sense, but there, there's this religion, this false humility, this neglect of the body, but, but here's the problem, folks. They are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh and the, the, the battle between the flesh and the spirit. I would offer you this, number three, asceticism. Asceticism, don't be controlled by religion. An ascetic is one who lives life in rigorous self-denial to demonstrate his religion. And this was one of the Colossian heresies that taught righteousness through religious self-denial. Denial. So l- let me be quick here to qualify the, the idea of religion. Religion is a synthetic man-made system or a program to achieve personal r- righteousness. You understand. New Testament Christianity is not a religion It is a relationship with Jesus Christ. However, under the banner of religion, listen to some of this asceticism. I'll give you just three examples here. Anthony, the founder of a monastic cult early in church history, lived an ascetic life by never changing his vest or washing his feet. That's disgusting, right? That's, there's no virtue in that, right? Here's another one. Simon Stylites, he lived in the years of 390 to 459. He spent the last 37 years of his life on top of a 50-foot pillar. He thought the path to spirituality lay in exposing his body to the elements and withdrawing from the world. You can Google this. It's documented history. There's no spirituality in that. Beginning in 1973, Amar Bharti of India kept his right hand raised over his head for 26 years. This is in the Guinness Book of World Records. As a gesture of devotion 
to, in that case, his Hindu god, Shiva. And for centuries, we're familiar with the monks who attempted similar feats of self-denial. Even Martin Luther, I mentioned a moment ago himself, Martin Luther nearly wrecked his health through asceticism before discovering the truth that we are justified by faith and not by works. So don't be controlled by religion and religious practice as a point of righteousness. Look at verse 23 again. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. In self-imposed religion, remember the Pharisees, I fast twice a week. This false humility, the neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. An ascetic lifestyle is vain, it's worthless, because it doesn't remove the lust or the desire for the indulgence of the flesh. It it has the appearance of religiosity, but it's not. In fact, Jesus warned his disciples in Matthew 6, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. And the purpose was only to appear spiritual, but nowhere is spirituality described in these ways. And so this was one of the the confusions in Christianity or the heresies among the Colossian church. So what's the application to 21st century Fourth Baptist Church? Your spirituality is not a matter of religion. It's a matter of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it is good to come here on Sunday, but more important than your attendance at this service on Sunday is your communion with God this morning, you see. Don't just check the box, I went to church, but commune in fellowship with God. We do a lot of religious things, but sometimes we neglect that relationship and there is confusion. And so, just a few moments remaining, I want to, I want to propose a solution. It's, it's not my solution, it's not my conclusion, it's what Paul has been writing in this letter. It's Paul's solution for the Colossians and it's what we're gonna call Biblicism. Biblicism, this is what the Bible teaches. It's specifically what Paul in his letter to the Colossians teaches is declare Christ to be all in all. And this is a theme I think it was summed up back in, or it will be up in uh, chapter three, verse 11. You see it there at the end of chapter three, verse 11, and we'll be there in a, a few weeks. Christ is all in all. And at the core of all of these Colossian heresies that, that Paul was addressing was a denial of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And so here at the midpoint of our, our study of this letter, let's step back, let's get the big picture The answer to all of the isms in the world is this biblicism because the Bible declares Jesus to be all in all. And I've given you a long list of subpoints. We're going to do this quickly. First, Christ is our God. And I'm giving you the references here in the book of Colossians. Christ is our God. You can can look at these later in your own time. Christ is our God. Letter B, Christ is our creator. Letter C, Christ is our head. Letter D, Christ is our savior. You see the scripture references there to Colossians chapters one and two. Letter E, Christ died for us. 
Letter F, Christ has forgiven us. Letter G, Christ has made us alive. Letter H, Christ dwells in us. And finally, as I have found these, you may find additional principles. Christ has completed us. Folks, in the case of the Colossian heresies, Paul declared Jesus to be all in all. And this morning in the face of contemporary confusion in Christianity, I submit that we must anchor ourselves to the person of Jesus Christ as, as uh, presented in the scripture. And then as we are saturated with the scripture and we are satisfied with Christ, confusion will fade away and we will see clearly Jesus is all in all. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ your son, our savior. God, we confess that at at times it's confusing. There are so many voices. There are so many resources. There's so much contradiction. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be those that run to Christ, knowing that we are complete in him. And in him, we have all that we need. We thank you for this. For I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.